Our coverage of the state versus Derek Chauvin continues again. Professor David Schultz joins us for another installment. I'm Lawrence Clady, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for being here with us. Today's a big day for the Derek Chauvin criminal trial, and we've got a lot to cover. But first, we need to thank our sponsor for supporting this program, NOTA. NOTA is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's NOTA spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. Once again, let's say hello to our friend. Welcome back, Professor Schultz. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you today? Busy. It's been a busy morning. You know, I spent the weekend catching up on a lot of this uh, trial, the Derek Chauvin trial. And of course, today was the uh, the closing arguments. And so I got I tried to catch as much of that as I possibly could. But I, I know you've been real busy with that. But let's do this, Professor. Let's catch up. You know, you and I last talked on day eight. And since then, obviously, both sides have rested. But kind of give us a brief walkthrough and what we can expect in the next couple of days here. Well, what we're going to expect is at some point, this is on Monday, the 19th, at some point, both sides are going to rest. They've gone a long time in terms of their closing arguments. And we should talk about that for a second there. Sure thing. And then what we're going to have um, is perhaps the judge at some point on this, on this, the 19th, will send the jury out to lunch, then send them off to the deliberation room. I doubt that the jury is going to start to deliberate on Monday the 19th. I suspect by the time they get checked into their hotel and so forth like that, today is a lost day, which means Tuesday the 20th will probably be the first day of deliberations. My estimate is they'll spend the entire day on Tuesday as a jury reviewing all the evidence. Perhaps as early as Wednesday, we might see the jury start to take votes now. That doesn't mean we're going to have verdicts that are going to be announced to the public, but I doubt we would see anything before Wednesday internally for the jury taking votes, which means maybe, maybe late Wednesday, but I'm still doubtful. I think we're looking at Thursday or Friday before at the earliest we get verdicts from the jury. You know, I definitely want to get into those closing arguments, but first I kind of want to catch up just on where we are in terms of how these cases have uh, played out from the prosecution and defense. And so I think the timeline has been relatively well established and, you know, what you take from that is going to be different based on a couple of things. It's going to be based differently on use of force and its reasonability and the medical cause of death. That seems to be the two major issues right now that are ultimately going to play out into whether or not there's a guilty verdict. And so let's start, Professor, if you don't mind the use of force aspect here. You know, tell us how both sides ended up presenting their cases and what the jury is going to have to consider. Well, what we need to understand here is that the use of force is an incredibly important threshold in terms of this case, both under state law in Minnesota, which is similar to other states, and by U.S. Supreme Court doctrine. If an officer acts reasonably, that is, acts as another officer would have acted in that situation, judging the facts from that point of view under what a totality of circumstances. If an officer acted reasonably at that point um, and how they responded to a situation, then the use of force, including deadly force or any type of force is authorized. And 
that determination of regarding whether or not an officer has acted reasonably looks at department protocol, policy procedures, rules on how to act in particular situations, state of Minnesota licenses, police officers. So we have what's called peace officer standards and training rules. And so what the prosecution has tried to do is to overcome what I think is an important bar, a bar that is allows police officers to use force, um, it might not be pretty, but to use force in the course of their job. And what they tried to do, if I can draw an analogy here, for those people who know business, what they've been trying to do is something akin to piercing the corporate veil, um, getting beyond, let's say in this case, the legal shell that protects officers and show that they've acted beyond their scope of duty and scope of authority. So that's been the focus in terms of what the prosecution did during its case and its closing arguments. It's been hammering that. Defense in response has been trying to say that this is exactly what Chauvin did. He was responding exactly to department policy protocol procedure. He's doing what a reasonable officer would have done. And both sides have brought their experts in to try to support them on these propositions. And again, this is an important bar to get through because as the judge said in the legal instructions this morning, if they, that is the jury, is not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the officer acted beyond the scope of duty, they cannot convict. Phrased another way, unless there's evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that Derek Chauvin acted beyond a reasonable fashion for a police officer under the circumstances, immediately the case is over. Jury must acquit. Wow. So basically, that's the fulcrum of the entire case, that first aspect, right? Right, right. This is like what? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. If you can't get past that, then you can't even get to the cause of death. You can't even get to mens rea. And this is part of why it's so difficult to get convictions for police officers, not just in Minnesota, across the country, because that statutory and qualified immunity is so powerful that gives tremendous benefit of doubt to police officers. Think about it. What the law is saying is that you have to judge the reasonableness from the perspective of what a reasonable police officer would have done under the totality of circumstances, given what that person knew. And what the Supreme Court has said is we can't use 2020 hindsight. Boy, that makes it tough because that gives incredible benefits of doubt to police officers. And that has been, for right or for wrong, a significant bar to police prosecution in the United States. What almost sounds like there's two hurdles for, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. You got one for this use of force and then next will come that medical cause of death. So let's focus on that. You know, the state's been making its case, uh, you know, kind of through breath and restriction of breathing and uh, the defense has been making its case undetermined cause of death. Can you walk us through a little bit of that? Sure. Now, what Minnesota law says for all three of the charges is that the first thing that you have to show is that Derek Chauvin's actions were substantially the cause of death um, of George Floyd. And again, that has to be shown beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's whether we're talking about second degree murder, um, second degree manslaughter, or third degree murder. You have to show that his actions substantially caused the death of George Floyd. And on the one hand, what the prosecution wants to say is you saw the video, believe what your eyes are telling you. Look at the knee, look at what was happening. Look at George Floyd saying, I can't breathe. What they've wanted to say is trust your senses, but then they've brought in medical experts 
to attest to, to the causes of death. They've had, I think, five medical experts that talked about what asphyxiation, um, how about the fact that, that maybe it was cardiac arrest triggered by the strangulation or, or loss of blood on the carotid artery to the brain. So they've tried to establish that cause of death. And again, what the prosecution is saying is that it doesn't have to be the only cause of death, but it has to be under Minnesota law substantially caused the death. On the other hand, what the defense has tried to do um, is to bring in some experts that raise what? The reasonable doubt. Remember, um, defense doesn't have to prove anything. It merely has to raise reasonable doubt. And what they've said is that there are a variety of other things that could have caused his death or contributed to his death. For example, and they were recounting this in the closing arguments again, his body contained fentanyl. It contained meth. Um, he was also at one point infected, I think they pointed out, with the coronavirus, you know, COVID-19. But they've been stressing the possible drug overdose. They've been stressing a panic attack. I think at the last minute, although I think it was very unsuccessful, one of the defense experts, Robert Fowler, was trying to say maybe it was carbon monoxide poisoning that contributed to it. But at the end of the day, what they're going to say is that what? That George Floyd essentially was already dying, and specifically dying of a drug overdose. And what they're going to try to convince the jury of is the fact that the drug overdose or the taking of the drugs really was a more likely cause of, of the death of George Floyd. And therefore, Derek Chauvin's actions, A, were not only reasonable, given what a reasonable officer would do, and refers us back to the first hurdle, but two, that his knee on George Floyd's neck was not the George Floyd's death, but that instead there were other causes, again, drug overdose that led to it. And so that's, that's the crux of their argument, asserting the reasonableness of Derek Chauvin's activity and B, trying to raise reasonable doubt about cause of death. And so think about it here. You know, if I think of it like, I don't know, I used to run track in high school. It's like <laughs> running like the hurdles. You know, you, know, you have right. to get across right. one hurdle to get to the next one. There's been two hurdles here that you have to get across. The first one, the light, the, the qualified immunity, the second one, cause of death. Okay, well, I've got a few questions about just my observations, and I want to get into some of the tactics used by the prosecution and defense that I wanted to run by just to see what your observations were. So one of the things I noticed here was style. And so, uh, like I said in our previous uh, interviews, and I think these are some of the best attorneys I've seen in the business, and I've noticed that, you know, just tremendously skilled, uh, you know, quick on their feet, but they both have kind of a similar style, you know, whether it's prosecution, the many uh, prosecuting attorneys, and uh, kind of the one defense attorney. I know he has a team. But it's really kind of one defense attorney, you know, out there asking the questions, uh, Eric Nelson. But on their direct, they're both very affable and gentle. And I guess that's to be expected when you're, you know, questioning your own witness. But there is a difference between the prosecution and the defense when it comes to cross examination. That prosecution's quite a bit more aggressive than the defense. And the defense, Eric Nelson, tends to be a little bit more measured and affable and friendly. Uh, he's kind of consistent between his direct and his cross. I just wanted to float that out there to see what your observations were. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm going to make an observation here and say that even though it's supposed to be Derek Chauvin's on trial and that the evidence decides the case, part of what anybody who's an attorney knows is that what you have to build a rapport with the jury. And if the jury likes you, that's really important. Although no one's supposed to vote and say, oh, I like Eric Nelson, therefore I'm going to vote to acquit. 
But for all of us, we know it influences how we think about things in the world if we like somebody. And what I think Nelson has tried to do is to build rapport and maybe, again, total speculation here, is that on the one level, from what we've seen, Chauvin doesn't look like a warm, fuzzy defendant, you know, that jurors are going to naturally sort of like warm up to. So I think in part to counteract that, again, a theory here, I don't know, is Eric Nelson is trying to um, be a little bit more affable, be a little bit more likable to put maybe the human face on the side of the defense. Yeah, I agree. I think it's been, I think, really well done. He's, I've never seen him lose his composure. So let me talk about another difference between the uh, prosecution and defense. So I did count 38 witnesses for the prosecution, whereas the defense only had seven. Now, I realize that you know the prosecution's got a more difficult burden to hit here, but still, 38 to 7 seems quite a bit. What's your experience with that in criminal cases? That does seem to be very odd. And especially I was expecting the the defense to go like, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What I mean by that, five medical experts for prosecution. I thought the defense was going to go with five on their side and so forth. And so I was really surprised. In fact, I was kind of stunned by the relative brevity of the defense in terms of um, witnesses and time, because I was thinking, two weeks approximately for the prosecution, one full week for the defense in terms of, of their case. And and it was what, what, maybe two days, two and a half days at most or something. That's what I read. Yep. Yeah. So it, it really did surprise me. And there's a couple of theories that I have out here. You know, one of them, of course, could be the defense thinks, well, prosecution didn't make their case. We don't need to do overkill at this point. Um, two, maybe defense just didn't have that strong of an argument. And three, they didn't want to what annoy the jurors by dragging this on longer and longer. And then I'm going to throw out another hypothesis. Can't prove it, but I'm going to throw it out here. Okay. I wonder if some of the experts they wanted to bring in turned him down saying, we don't want to be associated with this case. Uh, because this, as we know, is a controversial case. And think about the story that emerged over the weekend. Well, who is it? The use of force expert that the defense brought in last week. What is it over the weekend? The story was they found what a, what was it a pig's head and blood smeared on his front doorstep? Kind of reminiscent of what the, the old, what was it? The, um, the Godfather scene, you know, with the horse's head in the bed or something. And I just wonder if some potential witnesses for defense were just politically hesitant to testify. I agree that that was uh, Officer Barry Broad, I believe, who you're referring to yeah. there. Yeah, and I saw yeah. the news accounts of that. It's really tough. And, it, and I just I wonder how, you know, they're getting these people's addresses out there so quick, but that's unfortunately the world we live in with Google and social media. So one related question to that, and you got into this on our last, uh, one of our last episodes, there's all these uh, use of force experts for the prosecution, many more than so for the defense. And I know this was a an area of concern for the defense. They brought it up, they objected to it. Remember Eric Nelson talking about this in one of the um, sidebar or uh, one of the little uh, consultations without the jury. And he said, you know, this is starting to pile on. We're starting to hear from all these different accounts from different officers. It's getting confusing. And you brought up this uh, notion of it being cumulative. At at what point does it become cumulative? And is that going to play a role in any final determination here? You know, this is a tough balance here. On the one hand, what you want to have is more than just one person saying that this was an inappropriate use of force. You know, this is from the police department. Um, At some point, maybe you have a couple of witnesses to do that, 
But this is now where I just sort of wonder at some point, did they have so many that it was cumulative, which meant it was good. It was good in the sense that it just kept reinforcing, reinforcing and reinforcing the idea that this was excessive use of force. Or at some point now, does it create to what I think is a concern about juror fatigue and juror confusion? Because they're now going to have to go to the juror box, you know, deliberations and say, okay, were all these witnesses saying the same thing? Were they saying different things? I think at some point, what you have to do is take a very complex case like this and simplify it, make it simple, which is what the closing argument should have been. And it's not it's showing how complex it is. But yes. I wonder if they had gone with maybe Arredondo, you know, who was the Minneapolis police chief, you know, which I think is a pretty powerful witness. Agreed. And maybe let us say um, one outside expert. You know, who would say that, you know, generally across the United States, we would consider this to be reasonable. I wonder if that would have been enough and not potentially leave the jurors with confusion. Because again, I think the more facts, the more things they have to deliberate, the more difficult it becomes for the jury to reach agreement because they're going to spend time on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or whatever, saying five different witnesses or six different witnesses are all saying, you know, this, this, and this. How do we reconcile all that? Great point. Also great segue into my next question here. So I want to talk about the tactics used by each side in the testimony. And so start with prosecution, because we, we talked about them a little earlier in the last couple of episodes. And so this one, and it was brought up in the closing arguments by Eric Nelson, this use of freeze frames while they have video. So prosecution's been big into that. And it finally caught my eye and crystallized during the defense. And this was the cross-examination of, we just talked about Officer Barry Broad, who was the use of force witness for the defense. And so the cross-examination was done by Stephen, I think it's Slatcher. Is it Slatcher? Slasher. Slasher. And uh, so anyway, he he uh, was doing in his cross-examination this freeze frame, and they've got the video and this particular aspect of it. You've got uh, Derek Chauvin on top of George Floyd. There is this split second where his left foot gets picked up off the ground, just like an inch or two. They've uh, captured on that, left this still up, and they spent a lot of time analyzing that. And the implication was that now Derek Chauvin is using force. This, you know, he's not de-escalating, he's escalating, and uh, his full body weight is on George Floyd. And then when the video resumed again, you saw that that wasn't completely true. You know, you saw that uh, his foot was picked up for a split second and his weight's shifting around. He's kind of stabilizing himself on the car and George Floyd is still struggling around on the ground. And so I felt that that depiction, I understand why they're doing it, but I felt that that depiction was a little dishonest in that particular moment. But then I thought about all the different times they did that and what they're doing. And Professor, let me know if you agree, they're deconstructing this arrest down point by point to inject into their elements that they need for these charges. Would you agree with that? I would. And I think what's interesting is how we have seen the prosecution, I think they said this in their closing today, say something could start off as reasonable at a certain point and then turn into unreasonable or excessive use of force. And I think what's been so critical to the case here is, I mean, they haven't quite got down to the point of saying, Let's look at second one, second two of the nine minutes and 29 seconds, but they've gotten pretty close to that. Yeah. And they're trying to walk us through a point where they say, okay, even if you think that is jury, it was okay at, at zero seconds to do what he's doing. By the time we get to, let's say, two minutes and 20 seconds, this is now happening. This is unreasonable, et cetera, et cetera. So I think walking the jury through 
every step of that process, giving them, let us say, multiple, if I can call it entry points in terms of making decisions regarding when something has turned unreasonable, I think was a very smart move from the prosecution's point of view. But I also want to say from the defense's point of view, when I heard them closing today saying it's not just about nine minutes and 29 seconds, it's about the 15 or 20 minutes that occurs before that video. And now what? Elongating the time in which they want the jury to look at it. Because remember, the defense was pointing out and saying, well, did you realize that EMT was called? Did you realize these other things that were happening beforehand? And so I think it's been fascinating how both sides have been manipulating time, if I can use that phrase, as a way of presenting their case. Agreed. I think it's been really interesting. Obviously, they're uh, utilizing these uh, still shots and everything to their advantage. And so I've got a couple of questions about the prosecution's tactics, but I want to talk about externalities right now. Just real quick. Of course, Dante Wright, as we've been reading. We hope you're enjoying our continuing coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial with Professor David Schultz. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when I ask him about the possible impact of Dante Wright's death during his arrest in Minnesota. We'll also discuss tactics of the defense team, vital points for the jury to consider, and if it was a good idea for Derek Chauvin not to take the stand. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, everybody.